Powerful. All right. Well, this morning, um, I've asked Kenny to just share briefly his story. Uh, we baptized Kenny a, a year ago, and he shared, shared briefly then. I'm also going to do a bit of teaching, uh, continuing our series on uh, disciples making disciples, learning how to be fathered by God, that essentially discipleship is being fathered by God. That's really what it is. So if we, if we want to get discipleship right, then we need to get this right. Uh, because Jesus, when he called us to be disciples, invites us into the same relationship with the Father that he had. Isn't that amazing? That is just amazing. But uh, Kenny, come on up. Let's give Kenny a big welcome. Kenny has a lot of energy, and he's going to be going to lower posts with us this year, uh, and um, he's got energy to burn. We're hoping he'll be a little more mellow by the time he gets back, because he, he's, he's burned a lot of energy. No, that's not, that's not true. We, so Kenny, uh, just tell us briefly where you, you were born and raised, and, and where you grew up. Okay, uh, I was born and raised actually where we're standing here. Uh, on Commercial Drive. I'm a Commercial Drive baby. Uh, born at Vancouver General. Wow. June 15th, 61. There's not too many of those around. No, I'm a real Vancouver, right? <laughs> That's great. So tell us a little bit about your story and, and, and what what led up to your coming to, to faith. Uh, let's see. How could I say this? I was a little bad kid when I was a juvenile. And, uh, you know, I've been through the rap of bad and bad and bad and as as I uh, as I grew up uh, in my twenties, I'm uh, you know. I always had this feeling that there was there, there was uh, when you're born you're born perfect like innocent, and as I grew older, I end up being more spoiled, and um, as I started getting into my twenties and thirties, I, I, I started looking at my life and saying, "What's happening here? I'm just turning into a bad man." And uh, the bad man part is probably some of my upbringing from my father because he was a bad man and I didn't know how bad he was until he actually passed away a year ago. My mom actually told me how bad I was wondering why he was coming home with black eyes all the time. So as uh, I grew up, I said, you know, I started reading the Bible and you know what? I had so much sin in me, I could not make sense of it. I said, this book is just a bunch of garble. And then I started working for a while. I worked for Van, uh, Vancouver General in 1993, and I was a cleaner. And there was a lady, um, a German lady named Helga, and I, I wanted to invite her here. She is a charm and a half. A little bit too much Bible for me, but she is <laughs> like, you know, uh, she, she, she's just a charm, right? And I wanted her to be here, but you know what? She's probably feeling me right now anyways. And she, uh, she says, Kenny, you have to get the faith in you. I says, well, yeah, but I don't understand the Bible. So I started going. She started inviting me over to her house. And uh, kind of Bible studies, but no, not so much. I stood in the back and listened. And, and then I, I started getting it a little bit, and a little bit more. And then Alpha came along. So I went to Alpha. And I tell you, at Broadway Church over here, and Alpha, I met people that were Christians that were just like me. 
not the Christians that I see on TV. Yeah. And then I, they start telling me their stories, and they start telling me what, what parts of the Bible that rely to their stories and how they walk their, their livelihoods. And I started understanding it. And as I finished the course, I, st- I guess the faith just came into me like a, wow. like, like this. Everything I read in the Bible now, every time I read the book, I understand every bit of it. Every bit of it. You're doing better than me then. Wow. Well, no. Well... <laughs> Except for the Old Testament. <laughs> okay. I'm actually got this cue card right now with the New Testament, Old Testament, because I'm trying to figure out, I think what happened, I started reading the Old Testament, and it was the worst thing I did. I should not have read the Old Testament. Stay with the New Testament, learn that, and then go to the hard book. And now I got a card that goes from the Old Testament, or from the New Testament to the Old Testament, so I could kind of relate with, each, each thing, and it's still not easy. Right? Uh, so anyways, um, met Helga, and I was at Broadway Church, and uh, the faith was there. Like, uh, I said, I can read this book. I got to understand it. And I felt like a fresh breath of air hit me. It's like, I feel good. Like, even though today, like, Friday was my birthday, a lot of things have come down. Like, when a lot of things come down on you, what happens? You get depressed. And you start hating everything in the world and just everything. It's just bad karma that comes around you. But you know what? I got this faith, and I have a real hard time right now. Like, I'm depressed. But do I look depressed? No. Uh, do I? I mean, I have real stuff coming down on me. But you know what? The faith in God has to me. It's like I am. I'm here and I'm alive. Doesn't matter about my materialistic things. It's like I told my friends, I could lose everything I own today, and I'll still be happy the next day as I am today. It, you learn how to overcome materialistic things with faith. Um, and just one more thing before I end here. Back to my dad, Father's Day, God bless you. He's passed away last year. He was the toughest guy I ever knew. Tougher than nails, okay? Tougher than cast iron nails his last few days I didn't think he wanted to tell me that he was passing away but the last year he was there I think oh just to let you know he, my mom and dad never brought me up in religion okay but the year he passing away I could see God in his eyes I said, I, I'm looking in his eyes and I'm saying why do I feel, see good in you now? Hmm. Right? Like, like it, it totally changed. Like, before it was like this, like anger. Hmm. But now, I, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe he, he needed forgiveness and that stuff. And his, on his deathbed, he says, am I going to go to heaven? I said, Dad, you're going to go to heaven. Don't worry. But the changes that comes when it comes to the end of your life, why do people wait that long? Mm-hmm. Do it now. That's why I did it now. Right. You know, I love the world. I love everybody, except for the guys that come at me with downtown with you know things. Right? I love them too, but I run. Uh, but yeah, just to end it, um, I just blessed Halga for ma- uh, not making me a Christian, guided me to being yeah. a Christian. And then the next best thing that happened is I was at Broadway Church there. And, you know, there are a lot of um, 
a lot of nice people there, but I didn't feel home. And then I walked up, and I just bought my condo there years ago, and I came to this little place. And it just you just grow on me, people. Like you're like home. Like there's dad, there's dad, there's dad. They're all dads, right? So thank you for being kind of my dads. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you, Kenny. Beautiful. Wow. Wonderful. Thank you, Kenny. It's incredible to hear stories, eh? Like that. And I believe our city is filled with Kennys who need a seat course or an alpha course. Or, you know, we're looking at doing the seat course and similar idea. Oh, you're shorter than I usually am. So, Lord, thank you for being Father, even to the fatherless, even when our dads are so wounded that they don't know how to father because they've never been fathered themselves. And you still come through not only and heal us, but you touch our fathers. You touch those that, that wounded us. You forgive them and heal them and restore them too. I ask for your help, Lord, now as I share on learning to be fathered by you because ultimately there is one father. And all fatherhood comes from you. Would you come and empower these next few minutes just to cause us to, be, to enter into a deeper level of, of being fathered by you. Holy Spirit, that's what you're all about. That's what you've come for, is to show us, to bring us to the Father, to remind us of the things Jesus did and said to show us the Father. Come, Lord. Amen. Sorry to put you back to work, Kenny, but I think I need a stool. <laughs> You're just a jack-of-all-trades. That's great. So we're in a teaching series, as I said, on disciples making disciples. Thank you, bud. And uh, can I get the remote, too? Sorry, I'm really disorganized today. Uh, it's just, I just fit right in with this church. This is good. Uh, now we can't find the remote, so that's all right. All right. Check on the, the laptop, on the keyboard stand, uh, table below. Yeah, sometimes it's there. Yeah, I'll go. Like that, right? <laughs> okay. I'll just have to say next slide then. That's okay. Let's go back to the first, first one. Yeah. Learning to be fathered by God. If you could, yeah, there we go. Um, We've been exploring the role of the Holy Spirit in, in our discipleship and what is God's part and our part. And last week we talked about how this is the era of the Spirit. The Spirit has come. And we discussed the role of the Holy Spirit in bringing about our conversion into a life of discipleship. And one of the metaphors that Scripture likes to use, and we've heard it a lot, is the new birth. John uses this a lot. And in, and in John 1, he describes this synergy of our will and God's will. It's a very Eastern Orthodox concept, and to some degree Roman Catholicism, if you don't count Augustine and his crew. But there was this idea of synergy, um, of God's will and our, our will involved both in the process. And John describes it like this, to those 
who received Jesus to them who believed in his name, he gave the right. Do you see the synergy there? To those who received him, to those who believe on his name, to them he gave the right to become children of God. So there's this synergy of God birthing us, but us receiving and believing. Now the significance of this metaphor is that the Holy Spirit brings us into a relationship with God as our Father in this birth idea. The essence of our discipleship is entering into the same relationship with God as Father as Jesus had. And i got to say that again, because that is such a powerful statement. i got to say it again. The essence of our discipleship is entering into the same relationship with Father that Jesus had. That's what it's about. We are being mentored by the Holy Spirit to know God as Father in the same way Jesus did. So this whole area of being Father is very important if you want to be a follower of Jesus. So our text uh, points this out in Romans chapter 8, verse 14. For those who are led by the Spirit of God, Paul wrote, are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought your adoption to sonship. Now I want you to note that because that's often a misunderstood phrase when 20th, 21st century people read this because the understanding of adoption here is totally different than our modern day understanding of adoption. Also, it seems very gender exclusive to say sonship. And keep in mind, this is the TNIV, which is an inclusive language edition of the Bible. So if God speaks of, of, of is speaking to everyone, they won't say man, they'll say humanity. And yet, at, in this particular passage, even though it is obvious that Paul is referring to everybody, he calls it the adoption to sonship. So note that, uh, we'll get back to that in a minute. And by him we cry, Abba, which is uh, kind of like daddy. It's a term of intimacy. Abba, Father. Keep in mind the Jews were very upset that Jesus called God Abba. They, they didn't mind him being Peter. They didn't mind God being this distant. I kind of get the picture of the Jewish people's idea of God as Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader. Luke, I am your father. That's kind of the, the, the picture I get of the Jewish idea. God was distant. He was powerful. But he wasn't intimate. He wasn't close. They didn't believe in calling him Abba. And so when Jesus began to do that, they got very upset. Because he was, in, in one passage in John, it says, by doing that, you're making yourself equal with God. And, and so there was, there, was a lo- um, there was a lot of conflict over this issue of, of Father. In verse uh, 16, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So the, the TNIV now brings back the inclusive language, not just God's sons, but God's children, sons and daughters. So what's going on here? Verse 17, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Well, this term adoption to sonship is a, a, another metaphor that, that Paul draws upon. It was familiar with the Greco-Roman world where uh, a person, a, a son who was a firstborn heir would literally be under the tutelage of, a, of slaves until 
he became of age. And when he became of age, then he was, quote, adopted to sonship. He became a full heir. It'd be like Francesco Aquilini. You've heard of him? He's the owner of the Vancouver Canucks. And, it, and it's, 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 if you could imagine him having a son, and his son is a, is, is, is a little guy, so he runs around and he's a water boy for the Canucks. And, uh, you know, he gets the hockey sticks for the players. You know, you need these uh, gopher jobs, right, for hockey teams and sports teams. And so here's the owner's son running around, but he, everybody knows he's the rightful heir to the Canucks. And when he becomes of age, the father says, son, you're no longer the water boy. You're no longer the, uh, the hockey stick guy. You can now be, you can enter the boardroom. You're now co-owner with me. And you're part of decision-making for the organization. And that's what Paul means when he says adoption to sonship. So it's gender inclusive. It includes all of us. He says as sons and daughters of God, that adoption process is where we're delivered from the law. He's using it as an analogy of, of being freed from legalism and the law to a, a relationship of grace through faith with our Father. Uh, if we can go to the next slide. He... he uh, Paul writes to the Galatians, he's, in fact, in, in Galatians chapter 5, uh, 4, just hold that slide there, but in Galatians 4, Paul writes, what I'm saying is that as long as heirs are underage, they are no different than slaves, although they own the whole estate. They are subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by their father. But in Galatians chapter 3, Paul writes this, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you, were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And so Paul is saying that, that the, the old way of initiation into the people of God was circumcision, and that was gender exclusive. It, it involved only males, but now the entrance into the kingdom of God is through baptism, which includes everybody. And we are all one in Christ Jesus. And there's a remarkable example of how men and women are included into this inheritance, this, this, this idea of heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus. That we all, men and women, sons and daughters, have the same access and relationship to our Father. There's a remarkable picture of this, by the way, in the book of Job. Did you know this? Right at the very end of Job, the oldest book in the Old Testament. The oldest book in the Old Testament. Remember, Job goes through all that crap, right? He, he, he loses his family. He loses his, uh, his sons and daughters. He loses his property. He gets sick. His wife tells him to curse God and die. God brings him through that, and when he... when he does, he restores him to more blessing, more property, more wealth... His, his health is restored, and he gets, the, he gets what Scripture says, seven sons and three daughters, doesn't even bother naming the sons, gives the name of the daughters as Jemima, that's where the pancakes come from. The second is Keziah, and the third is Kirin Hapuk. And here's what it says about the daughters. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. A foretaste of the New Covenant. That, that was mind-boggling. Oldest book in the New Testament. You don't even hear about that happening in the Torah, except in that one case where the sisters didn't have uh, any brothers. 
So it's a remarkable foretaste of, of where the kingdom of God was, was, was going. And so, uh, next slide please, Galatians 4. Paul writes, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our heart, that the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, so you're no longer slaves, but God's children. And since you're his children, then he's made you heirs. And so Jesus came along and he showed us what the Father is like. He showed us how the Father would speak, how the Father would act, how the Father would treat the marginalized, the oppressed, the poor. He showed us what the Father's values are. And, and, and then He ascended to heaven and He sent the Holy Spirit. Now what's the Holy Spirit's role? Well, the Holy Spirit's role is now, you know the way Jesus knew the Father? I want to bring you to the Father. That's the Holy Spirit's role. And the first thing that happens when you and I are born of God is it's like I was there for both the birth of both my children and the doctor takes that little poor little one, you know, all, all messy and they come out and I hear this little smack or whatever they used to do back then and I hear, wah, you know. And, and it's just so moving. But it's like when we're born of God, this cry comes from our spirit. Abba, Daddy, Father. Right? And, the, and that is the work of the Holy Spirit bringing us to the Father. Paul wrote the Ephesians and he said, for through Him, speaking of Jesus, we both, speaking of Jews and Gentiles, or male and female, or slaves and free, or poor and rich, or whatever you want to throw in there, we all have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, we are no more foreigners and strangers. Turn to the person next to you and say, you're no longer riffraff. No, no, I'm just kidding. Don't do, don't, you don't need to do that. Some of my old Pentecostalism coming back there for a minute. All right. So, for the, for the last 15 minutes, I want to show, I want to give you an outline of how God fathers us. If we can go to the next slide, please. Uh, Robert Bly, in his book Iron John, which is a secular book written for men, I've drawn from some of his material for our men's retreats, but he, he wrote about a problem he noticed as he traveled across the continent, that as he talked to men, he heard this phrase, th this common angst and pain that men would say, there is not enough father. He would hear that. And it was a strange phrase. Because you'd think they would say, there's not enough fathers. We don't have enough dads around. But that's not what these guys were saying. They would say, there is not enough father. It was like a substance or something that was missing. And as I said earlier, the good news is there actually is enough father. There is through this incredible gift called the community of the Spirit, the body of Christ, there is Father available, regardless of what you've been through, or what you've faced, whether you had a dad or not, or whether it was a positive or negative experience, or whether there's a lack of Father in your life today. God says there's enough Father. And I want to show how He fathers us through this, a structure that Larry Crabb introduced in his book, The Silence of Adam. In, this, in his book, The Silence of Adam, Larry Crabb describes three aspects of fathering. Now, this is very human, but I want to use this as a structure, as a lens through which we can see how God fathers us. The first way that, God, that, that, that a person fathers us is, is a father is one who walks before us. Larry Crabb uses kind of this walking metaphor. 
that a father is one who walks before us. And I, whenever I hear this, and my dad will probably be listening to this sermon online at some point, so I've got to be careful what I say. But uh, I remember my dad saying, Gordy, let's go shovel the snow. And I, li- I was raised up in northern Alberta where, you know, some mornings you'd open the door to your house and you couldn't see out because of the snowbanks. I mean, it was just, we'd get these blizzards like you wouldn't believe. And so he'd say, let's go shovel snow. And I was a little guy, and I'm following my dad out. And literally to get through the snow, I'd have to see where he stepped. And I'd have to step in his, you know, in his footsteps. And Paul uses that analogy in Ephesians chapter 5, where he says, as dearly beloved children... Be followers of God. Walk in God's footsteps. And walk in love as Christ loved us. So there's this beautiful picture of following our Father and walking as He did. And of course, He showed us what He's like through Jesus. So, it's, so as, we, as we learn to be like our dad, we look at Jesus who said, those that have seen me have seen the Father. And I feel that God's God's gift to us is He gives us fathers who say to us by their walk, not by what they say, but by what they do, that you can do it. You can finish well. I had a young guy who's planning a church in the area. He's been been all over the U.S., been involved in the vineyard. And he looked at me, I'm 55 years old, happened to turn that this week, and he said to me, are there any guys your age that are finishing well? And I was shocked by his question. And I had, to, I had to acknowledge that a lot of my peers that I started out with are no longer walking. A father keeps walking. And I'm grateful for the models that I've had in my life of men of God, like my dad, who every morning at 7 o'clock I could hear him praying through the vents of our house for me, faithfully. I watched him pastor and plant two churches on the prairies without being paid a single cent through all my upbringing to be a pastor. He was a tent maker. He had to be a school teacher, superintendent of schools, and he would pastor after work and on weekends. And yet I never felt that I lost anything. I always felt he had time to play ball with me and to, and to interact with me. I don't know how he did it. He's a miracle man. This guy can build a house. He, he builds it from ground up. He does the electrician electrical work, he does the framing, he does the drywalling. About a year ago, he's almost 80 years old, about a year ago, he and another 80-year-old friend of his were drywalling a house for the guy's 40-year-old son who had a back problem. I wrote on my Facebook, they don't make them like they used to. My dad has modeled for me faithfulness, not just in success, but in failure. I've watched him lose a child. We lost my younger sister. I've watched them go through tragedy and grief. I've watched him go through bankruptcy. I've watched him, probably the greatest pain he experienced was as a pastor, as people inexplicably would leave his church, bitter, angry, turn against him. And he kept walking. He kept walking through bankruptcy. He kept walking. The Bible says in Proverbs that a righteous person falls seven times and rises again. You see, models are not people that are perfect. They're people that fall down and they keep getting up again. And they keep walking. And that's the model that my dad gave me. That's the model that that Gary and Joy Best gave me as they come to retirement this year as national directors of the vineyard. You know what impresses me about Gary and Joy? Not that they planted a church that exploded into the thousands in Langley 
and produce worship music that went all over the world. That's not what impresses me about them. You know what impresses me about them? It was the day they came to our church for the first time, and I was nervous. And they came to our church, and they loved on you, and, and they bragged about you, and they still brag about you. And the way they treated the marginalized, the, 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 the least of these, the way that they loved. Remember Davey? Some of you guys know Davey. I, Kathleen and I still keep bumping into him in the swimming pool. You know? And, 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 and I, I, I said, oh, here comes Davey. And he, he, he garnered their attention, and, 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 and I watched them love him and treat him with gentleness and respect and, and pray for him and give him time and give him an ear. I watched Joe and Charmaine Kelder who planted this church and now have planted the Alder Grove Vineyard. And I watched a life of faithfulness, a life, a life of gentleness, the way they loved our children. And God fathered me through that. God fathered me through what I saw, what, through what I observed, through what I witnessed. God is faithful. So I encourage you, because they're out there, they are there, they're our fathers, they're our models, they're our mothers. Peter and Jessica are going to teach on church fathers and church mothers, and sometimes, you know, when my eyes get blind, I go back to church history and I find some heroes from other generations. What, what, what is it that, they say that tradition is the democracy of the dead. And you, you know, it, when you go back and you read the lives of faithful men and women who have followed God, be inspired by them. The second uh, point, if you move the slide forward, is a father is one who turns to us. So a father walks before us and says, you can finish well. As Paul said to Timothy, I have fought a good fight. I have finished the course. I've kept the faith. Timothy, I did it. You can do it. It can be done. You can finish well. You can. Did Paul suffer? Absolutely. Did he have setbacks? Absolutely. Did he have failure? Absolutely. But Timothy, you can finish well. You get up and you keep walking. The father secondly does is he turns around to his son or daughter and he says, I am here for you. You are not alone. There is something about fathering that if I could just model it, just, it's the hand on the shoulder that says, son, you're not alone. John Eldridge, who wrote a book called Being Fathered by God, says that there is a chronic disease of men in this continent who believe that they're alone, that they have to do it on their own, that they don't have backup, that their dad's not for them. But a father turns to his son or daughter and says, I'm here. You are not alone. And I believe that, that God wants to speak to us through the words of Jesus who said, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. By the Spirit, the Father whispers to you and I, you are not alone, I am with you. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote from prison, and he wrote about the power of encouragement. And he wrote these words, that encouragement through the mouth of a believer is ten times more powerful than receiving it directly from God. And the primary way that God wants to communicate to you and I that He is here for us is through the body of Christ, through the family of God. That's why Paul says, you know what the primary characteristic of, is of the Holy Spirit? Do you know why he said, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns? Because when you're drunk with wine, you're, you're into yourself. You're not looking out for other people. You're just trying to survive to get home safely. But when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you have an eye for other, and you begin to spot 
the good things that the Father is doing, and you affirm that, and you speak the word of God, you speak the word of encouragement. And so, and, and in Colossians, he, he said this, let the word of Christ, let the message of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, songs. And I, I want to affirm you as a church. I see you doing that. I see you encouraging each other. I see you, you got each other's backs. You're being the Father. There's enough Father going around. That's the Father's love. That's the Father's encouragement. Who says, I'm here. You're not alone. We've got a God who's not just up there somewhere. He's a God with skin on, as the little girl said. We are that to one another through encouragement. You know what encouragement is? It's when I give you courage. You know what discourage is? It's when I take courage away from you. And you and I are always one or the other. We're always giving courage or we're taking courage away from one another. There's no in-between. You and I are either giving each other courage or we're taking it away. But there's a spirit of encouragement on this church. It wasn't always that way. It used to be a pretty discouraging place sometimes. Yeah? People, you'd walk in and they'd glare at you. Remember when I first started coming, it's kind of like, what are you doing here? Go, go back to Alberta, you know, or something like that. So God, God is there. He's not only there to, to affirm us, he, he sees what we do. Even when people overlook, God sees. The writer of Hebrews says he's not unrighteous to forget our labor of love. He sees our pain. He sees our tears. I remember when I was eight years old, uh, my, my dad was going to university in the summertime in Edmonton and I was staying at my grandma's place and my grandma and grandpa were at work. My dad was at school. I don't know where my mom was, but I was given custody of, to my uncle to take care of me for a few hours and he, he got his wires crossed and ended up leaving me. I was playing in the backyard of the house. I was eight years old and I was playing in my grandma's garden because I used to raid it for these baby carrots and these little... Peas, you know, that, oh, I love those peas, man. I'd eat the whole pod, you know, you know, you guys do that too. And, and, and I went back to, to find out where my uncle, because he seemed to be taking a long time, and the door was locked. And I went around the house, and, and that door was locked, and, and there was, everybody was gone. And here I was, all of a sudden in a big city, because we didn't live in the big city, we lived in a small town, I just was all of a sudden overcome with panic, and I realized I'd been left. And I literally wept for two hours. I just bawled my eyes out. I was just panicking. And, and I remember a woman walked by in front of me with her baby and, and, and a friend. And she said, oh, don't cry. Big boys don't cry. Right? And, and, and that's, that's a very painful memory for me because it was the sense that, number one, I had no right to cry. And number two, that nobody really heard or cared. And you see... Psalm says that the, our Father keeps our tears in His bottle. He keeps, a, he keeps a record of every teardrop. And He validates our pain. He hears our cry. And that's the message of the Psalms, is that God is a God who hears. And He tells us it's okay to cry. It's okay to shed tears. So, so, and He tells us that the sufferings of our present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. And finally, the third thing is, the Father is one who resumes walking. So He's walking before us, and we follow. He turns to us and says, you're not alone. But Larry Crabb says that a Father turns and continues walking. Now what's that about? Because each of us 
We walk our own road. We each have our own journey. I cannot live your life for you. Only you can. Each one of us has been given a life, a soul. A, the, the scriptures describe it as a book that's been written. Every one of us has a book written about our life. And no one else can live it. And God says, by, in His fathering, you can do it. You can finish well. I believe in you. Because I'm in you. And you can do this. Paul says to Timothy, as Timothy is crying. Now, Timothy was a grown guy crying. And he's saying, Paul, don't leave me here in Ephesus. This is a crazy place. A lot of heretics. I can't do it. I can't do it. And Paul says, Timothy, stay there. Stay in Ephesus. He says, God has not given you the spirit of fear. Stir up the gift within you. You can do it. Preach, rebuke, exhort. Be a pastor. Be a leader. You can do it, Timothy. Timothy was just a young guy. He said, Paul, I need you around. You ever feel like you've been, you know, the, the, all of your securities have been ripped out from underneath you. And, and, and uh, Kathleen and I are feeling that a bit with Gary and Joy retiring. Is all of a sudden we're stepping up now and we're going, oh my God. This is, this is scary, right? But God loves to bring us into those situations. There's an incredible story from Joshua where after they'd conquered a, a part of the promised land, they began to give each of the tribes allotments. And you see, each of us have been, been given an, an allotment and an inheritance in our life. As individuals and as a church, we have an inheritance. I believe that our inheritance as a local church is, is East Van, is this city, and different parts as people are sent out and plant. Those are allotments that God says, those are yours. But here's the deal. When he gives you an allotment, he says, this is your inheritance. And you go and say, oh, yeah, but there's giants in there. Yeah, well, drive them out. Yeah, but, 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 but there's obstacles. Well, remove them. See, it, if you study that story, and I know we all have problems with, some of us have problems with the violence of that, that part. But the point is, is that when God promises us something, it's not just handed to us on a platter. We have to fight for it. There's a struggle for that. A struggle of faith, right? And we, there's obstacles. And anything worth obtaining in our life requires struggle. And, and, and I feel that's what the Father wants to convey to us, is that, is, is that don't allow the fact that there is struggle to deter you or discourage you. And so these tribes were being allotted different parts, and there, there were the descendants of Joseph who were handed this territory and they outgrew it. They didn't fit and they were feeling squashed and, and cramped. And so they said to Joshua, they said, there's no room here. He says, well, I've given you all that too. And they said, yeah, but there's, there's a bunch of trees there and we're, we're, we, we're farmers. And Joshua says, oh, oh yeah. And, and then they said, yeah, but there's, and there's big Canaanites there, like these big Canaanites and they, and they have chariots like the modern-day tank, right? They, these, they have chariots. So, so, you know, they're saying, you know, Joshua, it's just not working. It's, there's, there's too much force there. There's chariots there. There's big Canaanites, giants there. And uh, it reminds me, I talked to a church planner in the Vancouver area recently, and he and his wife were ready to quit. And I was trying to encourage him, and he, and he said, well, I, we want to stay, but we never believed it was going to be this hard. We never believed it was going to be this difficult. Now keep that in mind, because Joshua, when these people said to him, it's too hard, here's what Joshua said to Ephraim and Manasseh. 
You are numerous and very powerful. You, now, here's the fathering of God coming through Joshua. He says, you will not only have one allotment, but the forested hill country as well. Here's what you do. You clear the land. And its farthest limits will be yours. Though the Canaanites have chariots fitted with iron, and though they are strong, you can drive them out. <laughs> you can do it. Do it. And some of you need to hear that this morning. You're facing obstacles, and God's saying, you can do it. You can finish well. You can keep walking. I know it's hard. God said, never... What is that bit about what we read? If we're children, then heirs, and if we suffer with him? There's suffering in this. Oh, I forgot that bit. Forgot that little footnote to our discipleship, right? There is suffering. You can do it. Now, if we can go to the next slide, I want to show you how God, how God is fathering us today. A few months ago, I was meditating on, a, on the construction of the temple by Solomon. And, and I was going through my own personal anguish because another person had announced that they were moving away. And, 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 and I was just saying, God, it's just so hard to build something here. It's so, there's, there's such a challenge of transience. And, and, uh, and as I was studying the temple, I was struck by the fact that Solomon built two massive pillars in front of the temple. And he named them. The first one was Yakin, J-A-K-I-N, which means Stability. The other one he named Boaz, which means strength. And I felt like God promised me that he was bringing strength and stability to our local church. And then I, 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 I left my devotional time rejoicing, and a bunch more people had announced that they're moving away. <laughs> but I was reminded of a similar scripture in Revelation, and it was the context of the church, was, was the church of Philadelphia, the last... This, second to last church that Jesus addressed. And he said to them, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have a little strength, that you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So here is a local church that Jesus said, Your strength is small. They felt insignificant, but he said to them, You've got a little strength. And you've, they have, you haven't denied me, and you have an open door. And then he went on to say this. Next slide. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Those who are victorious, I will make pillars in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. How is God fathering us today? First of all, he says, hold on to what you have. Do you know what you have? How many know if you don't know what you have, you can't hold on to it? So the first thing is, stay aware of what you have. Why do people end up in adultery? Because they lose sight of what they have. Why do people walk away from God? They lose sight of what they have. See, I believe that when you and I are unfaithful, when we walk away and we give up because it's too hard, oh, I, I didn't sign up for this. When we walk away and, and check out and, and quit on something that is a promise of God that we've pursued, we throw away a crown. We throw away a treasure. And someone else comes along and reaps the reward that we should have had. Hold on to what you have that no one take your crown. It doesn't mean that God doesn't forgive. Of course He does. He's merciful. 
But the tragedy is that all the hard work and tears that we sowed, someone else gains the benefit. See, there's a treasure, there's a crown that each of you has. God says, hold fast to what you have. I think this is graphically illustrated in this story that Daniel Snell forwarded to us about a missionary couple in 1921 named David and Sevilla Flood who went with their two-year-old son uh, from Sweden to the heart of Africa to what was then called the Belgian Congo. And they met up with another Scandinavian couple, the Ericsons, and the four of them sought God for direction. And in those days of much tenderness and devotion and sacrifice, you know, you, you, you start out, you've got this vision, they felt led of the Lord to, to set up from the main mission station and take the gospel to a remote area of the Congo jungle. This was a huge step of faith. At the village of Nadolara, they were rebuffed by a chief who would not let them enter his town for fear of alienating the local gods. The two couples opted to go half a mile up the slope and build their own mud huts. They prayed for spiritual breakthrough, but there was none. The only contact with the villagers was a young boy who was allowed to sell them chickens and eggs twice a week. Zvia Flood, a tiny woman only four feet eight inches tall, decided that if this was the only African she could talk to, she would try to lead the boy to Jesus. In fact, she succeeded, but there were no other encouragements. Meanwhile, malaria continued to strike one member of the little band after another. In time, the Ericsons, the other family, decided they'd had enough suffering and left to return to the central mission station. David and Sevilla Flood remained near the village to go it alone. Then, of all things, Sevilla found herself pregnant in the middle of the primitive wilderness. When the time came for her to give birth, the village chief softened enough to allow a midwife to help her. A little girl was born, whom they named Aina, kind of a uh, Dutch name, I think. The delivery, however, was exhausting, and Sevilla Flood was already weak from bouts of malaria. The birth process was a heavy blow to her stamina. She lasted only another 17 days. Instead, David Flood, inside David Flood, something snapped when she died. Something snapped. He dug a crude grave, buried his 27-year-old wife, then he took his children back down the mountain to the mission station. He gave his newborn daughter to the Erickson family. And he snarled, I'm going back to Sweden. I've lost my wife. And I obviously can't take care of this baby. God has ruined my life. With that, he headed for the port, rejecting not only his calling, but God himself. Within eight months, both the Ericsons were stricken with a mysterious malady and died within days of each other. The baby, girl, then was turned over to some American missionaries who adjusted her Swedish name to Aggie and eventually brought her back to the United States at the age of three. This family loved the little girl and were afraid that if they tried to return to Africa, some legal obstacle might separate her from them. So they decided to stay in America and be pastors instead of missionaries. And that is how Aggie grew up in South Dakota. As a young woman, she attended North Central Bible College in Minneapolis. There she met and married a young man named Dewey Hurst. Years passed... And the Hearst enjoyed a fruitful ministry. Aggie gave birth first to a daughter and then a son. In time, her husband became 
the president of a Christian college in the Seattle area, and Aggie was intrigued to find so much Scandinavian heritage there. One day, a Swedish religious magazine appeared in her mailbox. She had no idea who had sent it, and of course, she couldn't read the words. But as she turned the pages, all of a sudden, a photo stopped her cold. There in a primitive setting was a grave with a white cross, and on the cross were the words, Sevilla Flood. It was her mom. Aggie jumped in her car and went straight for a college faculty member who she knew could translate the article. What does this say, she demanded. The instructor summarized the story. Well, it was about missionaries who'd come to Ndola in the Congo long ago. There was the birth of a white baby, the death of a young mother, the one little African boy who had been led to Christ, and how after the whites had left, that boy had grown up and finally persuaded the chief to let him build a school in the village. The article said, oh, I hope I can get through this one. The article said that gradually he won all the students in the school to Christ. The children led their parents to Christ. Even the chief became a Christian. Today there were 600 Christian believers in that one village alone. All because of the sacrifice of David and Sevilla Flood. For the Hearst 25th wedding anniversary, the college presented them with a gift of a vacation to Sweden. There, Aggie sought to find her real father. An old man now, David Flood, had remarried, fathered four more children, and generally dissipated his life with alcohol. He had recently suffered a stroke. Still bitter, he had one rule for his family, never mention the name of God, because God took everything from me. After an emotional reunion with her half-brothers and her half-sister, Aggie brought up the subject of seeing her father. The others hesitated. You can talk to him, they replied, even though he's very ill now. But you need to know that whenever he hears the name of God, he flies into a rage. Aggie was not to be deterred. She walked into the squalid apartment with liquor bottles everywhere and approached the 73-year-old man lying in a, in a rumpled bed. Papa, she said tentatively, he turned and began to cry. Aina, he said, I never meant to give you away. It's all right, Papa, she replied, taking him gently in her arms. God took care of me. The man instantly stiffened. The tears stopped. God forgot all of us. Our lives have been like this because of him. He turned his face back to the wall. Aggie stroked his face and then continued undaunted. Papa, I've got a little story to tell you, and it's a true one. You didn't go to Africa in vain, and Mama didn't die in vain. The little boy you won to the Lord grew up to win that whole village to Jesus Christ. The one seed you planted just kept growing and growing. Today there are 600 African people serving the Lord because you were faithful to the call of God in your life. Papa, Jesus loves you. He has never hated you. The old man turned back to look into his daughter's eyes. He re his body relaxed. He began to talk. And by the end of the afternoon, he had come back to God, the God he had resented for so many decades. Over the next few days, father and daughter enjoyed warm moments together. Aggie and her husband soon had to return to America. And within a few months, David Flood had gone into eternity. 
A few years later, the Hearsts were attending a high-level evangelism conference in London, England, when a report was given from the nation of Zayar, formerly the Belgian Congo. The superintendent of the National Church of, the, of Zayar, uh, representing 110,000 baptized believers, spoke eloquently of the gospel spread in his nation. Aggie could not help going to ask him afterward if he'd heard of David and Sevilla Flood. Yes, madam, the man replied in French, his words then being translated into English. It was Sevilla Flood who led me to Jesus Christ. I was the boy who brought food to your parents before you were born. In fact, to this day, your mother's grave and her memory are honored by all of us. He embraced her in a long, sobbing hug. Then he continued, you must come to Africa to see because your mother is the most famous person in our history. In time, that is exactly what Aggie did. They were welcomed by cheering throngs of villagers. She even met the man who'd been hired by her father many years before to carry her back down the mountain in a hammock cradle. The most dramatic moment, of course, was when the past pastor escorted Aggie to see her mother's white cross for herself. She knelt in the soil to pray and give thanks. Later that day in the church, the pastor read from John 12, 24, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. He then followed with Psalm 126, verse 5, those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. Hold on to what you have, that no one take your crown. The only tragedy of that story is that a man lived embittered against God for three decades, drowning his pain in alcohol with no idea of what God saw, with no idea of the crown that was there for the taking. I'm not condemning him for leaving. I probably would have done the same thing. But I think it's the whole element of, of knowing that we have a God who hears our pain and can handle our anger and handle our frustration. And if he would have just vented it directly to him rather than turning his back, the Father would have been there to walk him through it. So my question for you today is, what is the crown that the Father is asking you to hold on to? Hold on to you have. Where is the Holy Spirit challenging you to hold on? Or what is the Holy Spirit challenging you to hold on? What do you need to overcome in order to do that? What battle are you facing? Where are you tempted to give up and to just chuck it all away? To say, I didn't sign up for this. Can you hear your father whispering to you? You can do it. Hold on to what you have. Don't let anyone take your crown. Father, thank you for your fathering heart that you don't just comfort us in our pain, but sometimes you give us that loving kick in the backside when we need it, when we feel like we can't do it. And we just need to hear that loving, strong word. I am with you. You can do this. 
Would you come, Lord? Would you encourage us today? And just on that last question, I'm going to leave it today. I'm just going to say, pray for one another. Maybe, maybe some of you are just on the edge of just throwing it all away, doing something stupid. I've been around in ministry long enough to know that it wouldn't surprise me at all. But where you're, where you're dangling by that thread, where you're making choices, there's addictions. The Father says you can overcome that. Not on your own, as the 12-step says, but through that power that's in you. You can. So let's be the Father to one another today. Let's be the Father's heart to one another. Let's prophesy over one another. Let's, let's sing songs if we have to. That's what coming together is about. It's allowing God to father us through each other. Steve? Yeah. Sure. Yeah, just because we're recording. Thank you. Yeah, I just uh, wanted to respond to what Gordy's been sharing. Before this, this morning when I was getting ready to come, and I just felt like God was saying, the Father was saying something to me, and uh, just that he looks at you men as men. And he sees you as his sons. You, every one of us, is his son. And when he looks at you, you are unique. So I believe that God, this morning, there is a way that we can say Happy Father's Day. There's a way we can respond to him and say, Abba, happy Father's Day. And that's to respond to the message this morning and say, Dad, I want to stand up and say to you, by your grace and and by the strength you give me, I want to never doubt your love for me the rest of my life. I want to stand this morning and make a decision by your grace and by your mercy and your strength you give me. I will never, I never want to doubt your love for me. So that we can make a decision now, this morning, that will affect the rest of your life. No matter what comes, you'll remember that you responded and said, Father, I will never doubt your love for me. And God will give you grace. See, there's times when you can make a decision to make a commitment to be the man God called you to be. So I just would like, if it's all right with Gordy, to give a, a chance. If, if you want to do that, if that's a desire in your heart to respond to the Father this morning and say, by your grace. And there's one other thing I want to say first. One of the problems we have as men is we compare ourselves to other men. And that's poison. You compare how your life is going, what you have, what you do for God to to the guy next to you. And that isn't what God wants. He doesn't look at you the same as he looks at Gordy or looks at anybody else. You're uniquely his son. And he never asked you to be Gordy. He never asked you to be anybody else but who you are. And he's proud of you. 
Now, God isn't always easy to get along with because he's holy and we're not. But we've got to always start at the point that he loves us and accepts us because we have put ourselves in his care and trust by believing in his son. And that made it automatic that you became his son. And so I just again want to say, if you want to respond to the message this morning and stand before God the Father and say, I would like to say to you, Father, by your grace, by your strength, the rest of my life, I want to never doubt your love for me, no matter what. Mm. See, that guy did not have to... And I, I agree with Gordy. I probably would have run too. I, I, I can't imagine the pain and suffering he went through. Yeah. So I, there's no judgment here at all. But I'm just saying, we can make a decision that could make a difference in our lives. So if you want to respond to that, I'm just going to ask you as a man to stand before God. And just say, Father, by your grace, I'd like to, to make that commitment to you. So if you want to stand with me, go ahead. Father, we, here we are, men of God, men that you've chosen, men that you've called, and we synergized with you. We responded to the message of truth and the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ, and we said, yes, Father, we will believe that you love us, and we will believe that he died for us, and that you sent your only begotten son. That's how precious we are to you. And we never want to doubt that, Father. We never want to be disloyal by doubting your love. But we want to be faithful. And we can't do that without your grace. We know ourselves too well, Father. But we know you are faithful. And we're asking today that you give us the grace to make this commitment. The rest of our lives, Father, no matter what, No matter what, we want to never doubt that you love us and we are uniquely yours, each one of us. And you love us uniquely, different than anybody else around us. And we are your sons. So we commit ourselves to you, Father, on Father's Day, to be your sons. God, help us to walk with you Help us to learn to obey you and trust you in everything and become fully like your son Jesus. We trust you for that, Father, and we love you. We want to say we love you this morning. You're our dad and Abba. We love you. So I'd like to also just, uh, I I, I believe that was a word for our men. Mm -hmm. And, and, And I think some of us as guys, we have a tougher time trusting in this area. But I'd like to include women who'd like to be included in that blessing. I want to bless you as a father today. So if you'd like to be included in that, just stand as well, the rest of you that want to be included in that. Joanna also wants to just share something quickly. And I think the emphasis is uh, for us to, to really grab a hold of what Steve said, that we refuse to compare ourselves. I know that that was something that was just a a curse on my life when I was constantly comparing myself to somebody else. And the Lord is continuing to set me free from that. But Joanna has something too. 
Yeah, the thing that is uh, touching me right now that I'm that I just felt like I was supposed to share because maybe there was somebody else in the same spot too. But I was really touched by Gordy's story of being left alone and then being told by somebody that they weren't supposed to cry, that it wasn't okay to cry. And that was something pretty tender for me because my understanding when someone encourages you, and the other half of the sermon was a father is somebody that says, come on, you can do it. It's a hard struggle, but keep going don't let the obstacles go is that my understanding is those two are in opposition with each other. They're the opposite of each other. That when you're being told you can do it, you know, get the giants, get whatever, go through the struggle. It's when you're stuffing it down. It's when you're sucking it up, when you're not sharing your tenderness, when you're not sharing that you need to cry. And so I just feel actually quite torn right now and just really in need of prayer and perhaps that is the father's blessing that those two are not in opposition to each other that it's completely the character and the heart of god to say you can do it don't give up i'll be with you and you can tell me how bad this hurts and you can tell me how much how hard this is and you can tell me this struggle and it's okay for you to say that and it doesn't mean you're weak and it doesn't mean that you're giving up it just means that you're hurt and I hear you. That's right. So that's my thought for the day. Good word. Yeah. So let me bless you. And I do encourage you all to, if, if, if any of these things have spoken to you, to just make sure that you get somebody to pray with you. And, and, and yeah, just express. If you just put it in the last, uh, Mark, if you could just put it on the last slide. It, it, just this question, uh, just... Yeah, there we go. I'll leave that question there. What, what, what is the obstacle? And, and maybe it is that sense of paradox or contradiction. And I grew, I grew up with basically believing that it was not okay to, to be real uh, with God. And I suffered a nervous breakdown at the age of 30 and put me out of ministry for a couple years because I didn't know how to deal with my grief, my disappointment, and my pain. Uh, and, and I realized that, that lament and... and Invent is part of worship. It's not, it's not a contradiction to it. So I bless you to be children of your Father who has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts that cries out, Abba, Father, who cried out in the garden with loud cries and tears. And it says He was heard because of His reverent heart in the midst of His pain. He said, Father, if there's any way out of this, Get me out of this. That's the spirit of his son that he's put in you. So I bless you to be children, sons and daughters of your father, and to walk in his grace, to walk in his peace. As Paul said to Timothy, grace, peace, and mercy from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You can do it because the greater one is in you. But when you feel you can't, it's okay to say so and to tell me. So I bless you to be people of the Trinity, sons and daughters of the Father, and to walk in the life of the Trinity. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace.